How would you finish this sentence? Your grasp of Christianity cannot be better than your grasp of fill in the blank. Your grasp of Christianity cannot be better than your grasp of what? Of Jesus? Of the Bible? Your grasp of understanding the rules that you have to keep? Fifty years ago, here's how a man named J.I. Packer completed that sentence. Our grasp of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you would want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. End quote. So to understand the Christian faith, we need to understand what it means to be God's child. And this happens not by achievements by us, but adoption by God. And this is what we'll consider this morning as we consider or continue our series in Advent. We've been considering the gifts of Christ, and this morning we consider the gift of adoption. Uh, to focus our attention, we'll be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat in front of you. In Galatians, we found on page 974. If you're new to the Bible, the chapter is the big number versus the little number. And so we're going to be in big number four, little numbers four through seven to orient our time. And to set the context for Galatians, this, this letter is, is, a, is written by the Apostle Paul to several local churches because he has a concern for these churches. And his concern is there's, there's teachers, they're spreading a false message. There are false teachers saying that you need to, to be made right with God, you need faith in Jesus, and certain behaviors. They were preaching, hey, you need to have faith in Jesus, and you need to follow the law in order to be saved. They had a message of works. And Paul is saying, no, no. The true gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And not just your salvation, but your sanctification, your God-honoring behavior is by grace alone, through faith alone. And in chapter 4, these first several verses, Paul's double-clicking on how the law of God, while a good thing, cannot bring about freedom and joy and salvation and satisfaction. Paul says, if you try to obey the law, if you're trying to do good things to earn God's favor, to be made right with God, it only enslaves you. The law reveals your sin and it condemns. It does not bring freedom. That's what Paul says in this first few verses. But that changes with Jesus. In Christ, we go from slaves to sons. Look at verse 4. As I read 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So... 
you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of God. Amen. As we unwrap and enjoy this gift of adoption, we'll consider two things from this passage. The reality of adoption, that's verses 4 and 5. The results of adoption, that's verses 6 and 7. The reality of adoption, we're going to look at the when, the who, the how, and the why. So the reality of our adoption, when? When the fullness of time had come. That's when. But what does the fullness of time mean? Well, first of all, it means that God has a plan. And God has been working all things to bring this plan to completion. We see this plan starting to unfold from the very beginning of the Bible. If you open the Bible, the very beginning, you you found God creates Adam and Eve. And he creates them to know and enjoy him. And tells them, listen, your job is to fill the earth with worshipers. But what do Adam and Eve do? They rebel against God. They doubt God's goodness. They deny God's love. They rebel against him. And because of this, rebellion brings separation. Separation from God, and God is life. Separation means death, spiritual death cut off from God, which culminates in physical death, the cessation of life. But God had a plan. In Genesis chapter 3, he tells Eve, one of your offspring is going to crush the head of the tempter and the tormentor. It's going to crush the head of Satan, the serpent. And He makes a promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. Listen, one of your offspring is going to be a blessing to all the nations. He makes a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David that one of his sons would be king forever. And so from the beginning of time, God has been working about all things to bring about the fullness of this plan to secure our adoption. Some of you do an Advent devotional through this season. My family does one. Uh, every day, and there, there's a refrain. Our devotional walks through the major stories of Scripture, and at the end of each day, there's a refrain. And it, it gets this idea, this promise, and the refrain says, God is good and just. Sin separates him from us. But God promised not to leave it this way. Soon, he's coming back to earth to stay. Christmas tells us God is faithful to fulfill that promise. The fullness of time has come. God, the promise maker, is God the promise keeper. And we have to realize this, that this plan is not in reaction to human sinfulness. It's not as though God created, looked down and said, oh my, I cannot believe they did that. What am I going to do now? He wasn't caught off guard. Listen to the way Paul writes about our adoption in Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What God planned in eternity past, he carried out in history. Just at the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, Jesus came to make us sons and daughters of God. And so do you see what this means, beloved? God is faithful to his promises. Advent is a time to teach us the fullness of time has come. Christmas, Christ is born. Christmas tells us God has not forsaken you. Christmas tells us God has not forgotten you. Christmas tells us God has not failed you. 
Nothing and no one can thwart God's promises. Nothing can make him give on his purposes. So there's no need to be fearful or sinfully anxious when things don't go as you like or expect. The birth of Jesus is God's clear demonstration that he will always make good on all of his promises. Thousands of years between Genesis and Jesus tell us we can't do it, but God will and he has done it. In the fullness of time, he promises to adopt his children. But who? Who's going to do all the work to make this adoption a reality? Look again there at the text. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's who. Our adoption is the divine intention of God, and it's initiated by God. Look there at verse 4. We see that God sends his son. Now look at verse 6. What does God do? God sends his spirit. Here we have the triune God at work, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in harmonious agreement, planning and fulfilling our adoption. This is how much God loves you. Remember my sermon a few weeks ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Father loves you so much that he willingly sent his son Jesus for you. Jesus loves you so much that he willingly laid down his life for you. The Spirit loves you so much, he willingly comes into your heart that you might see and savor, trust, and treasure Christ. Brothers and sisters, consider the birth of Jesus and marvel that the triune God of the universe, before eternity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, planned your adoption. Marvel that he accomplishes and applies your adoption that you might be called a child of God. And notice that Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to accomplish our adoption. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 4. Look how Jesus is described. Three things. First, he's God's son. This highlights the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is truly and fully God. He is not created. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. God the Son for all of eternity. God the Father has loved the Son for all of eternity. And Jesus is born of a woman. This highlights Jesus' humanity. Jesus is truly and fully human. This is what we call the doctrine of the Incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus, who is fully God, takes on the fullness of humanity. He became what he was not, human, but he did not cease to be what he was and is, God. The 4th century African Augustine captured the poetic paradox this way. Man's maker was made man. That he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. The bread might hunger. The fountain thirst. The light sleep, the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, strength might go weak, the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Think about this, beloved. Think about it. God became human. The one who hung the stars in the sky swims in amniotic fluid. 
the omnipotent creator dependent on an umbilical cord. The creator of all things travels the birth canal. The one who sat on a magnificent throne in heaven now lay in a dirty manger on earth. God in the person of Jesus Christ wrapped in swaddling cloth, the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. Be amazed. God's son, born of a woman, and what else does the text say? Born under the law. Born under the law. So Jesus was born as a Jew, required to keep every law in the Old Testament which he did with total, absolute perfection. He was circumcised on the eighth day as the law required. He never broke one of the Ten Commandments. He always followed the biblical pattern for worship in his actions and his affections. He kept every feast and every festival. Everything the law required, he did all the time his holy life. He, He perfectly loved his Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And... He loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus never had a malicious thought or a misplaced word. Jesus never lusted. He never manipulated. He never gossiped. He never abused. Jesus was never passive, and he wasn't overly aggressive. Jesus was filled with a faultless mixture of conviction and compassion. As a child, he obeyed his parents perfectly. As an older brother, he loved his younger siblings flawlessly. As a carpenter, he worked diligently, honestly, and full of integrity. As a friend, he spoke truth and shed tears. This is Christ. Every aspect of the law, everything God requires, everything it means to be a righteous human, Jesus fulfilled in his life. He's the only one qualified to accomplish our adoption. God's son, Jesus is truly and fully God. Born of a woman, Jesus is truly and fully human. Born under the law, Jesus is truly and fully righteous. As one pastor says, if Jesus had not been a human, he could not have redeemed humanity. If he had not been righteous, he could not have redeemed the unrighteous. If he had not been God's son, he could have not redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Only one such as this can accomplish our adoption. But how did he do it? How did he accomplish our adoption? Look again at the text. The text tells us, To redeem those who are under the law. Adoption is accomplished by redemption. Jesus not only fulfilled the law in his life, he fulfilled the law in his death. Glance back up to chapter 3, verse 13. This is what Paul says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And to add a little more clarity, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, 
It says Jesus gave himself, why? For our sins. Jesus kept the whole law in his life, perfection. Jesus kept the law in his death, crucifixion. From the cradle to the cross, divine perfection through human limitation. Why? To redeem us. That is to pay the penalty for our sins. What you heard Ray read and pray about earlier. To purchase us from slavery to sin. See, because left to ourselves, we're like Adam and Eve. We too disobey God's word. We too doubt God's love. And Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. And because of this, we're we're separated from God. Spiritually, just like Adam and Eve, cut off from relationship. Physically, it'll end in death. Before we think about the incarnation at Christmas, we need to think about the indictment of Christmas. I know that's not what we like to think about. But before we behold the incarnation at Christmas, we have to consider the indictment of Christmas. What is it saying? Why did God send his eternal son? Why did Jesus willingly come only to be mocked, scorned, shamed, beaten, crucified? Was it because we needed a little bit of good advice and an example to live a better life? Was it to make us sure of ourselves, to pump up our self-esteem, to say, you can do it? Was it because we needed a better political leader? Was it because we needed another humanitarian trailblazer? Was it to offer one way of salvation while affirming, you know what? There's actually a lot of ways. Choose your own path. Was it to affirm every feeling that we have about ourselves? No. Jesus came to redeem us from the grips of sin. Satan and death. Jesus alone came to pay the penalty for our sin. He did that on the cross. Sin condemned in him, exhausting the righteous wrath of God, bearing our shame, taking our guilt. He died the death that we deserve to die. And Jesus overcame death. And he did this when he walked out of the tomb on the third day. He was born that he might die. And he died that we might live, being reconciled back to God knowing that even our physical death is not the end of the story. It just ushers us into the presence of God when we trust in Christ. Jesus is the only one who did what we could not do, and let's be honest, what we did not want to do, to give us the grace that we need. Christmas is about God coming to man, that we might be brought to God. Jesus took our nature in Bethlehem, He died our death in Jerusalem to redeem us, to reconcile us back to God. And so here's the good news of Christmas. All those who turn away from the rebellion and trust in Christ alone for salvation to be made right with God. Guilt is gone. Shame is removed. Death is defeated. There is no other way. But you don't need one. Christ is enough. He is enough. See, the birth of Jesus isn't just a sanitized, feel-good tale about a baby born in Jerusalem. No, the story of Christmas must be shaped by the cross of Christ. It's not just a story about stable and straw. It's also about nails and thorns. The incarnation cannot save without 
the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Friend, if you're trusting in something else other than Christ, tradition, yourself, kids, if you think you're a Christian because your parents are Christian or because you come to church, let me encourage you to consider this reality. None of those things, while they might be good, none of those things make one a Christian. Left to ourselves, we cannot earn God's favor. But Christ has done everything necessary that we might be adopted by God. So young kiddos, young kiddos, listen. So tonight or tomorrow morning, you're probably going to open a gift or two. Praise be to God for that. But as you open them, when you're done, here's one question you should ask your mommy and daddy. You ready? These gifts are great. But why is Jesus a better gift? Ask your parents that, okay? Students, youth, I know you're probably looking forward to give some gifts too. So ask your parents or maybe one of the youth group leaders, can you remind me how Christmas points to and prepares for the cross? Just that simple question. How does Christmas point to and prepare us for the cross? Paul's holding out the gift of adoption, that we might unwrap it and enjoy it. He's saying, listen, through redemption, through Jesus, the Son of God, living, dying, and rising again, you can be made sons of God. And here we arrive at the why of our adoption. The reality of our adoption, why? Look at the end of verse 5. So that, here's the purpose clause, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's why God sent his son, that we might become sons. Adoption means God, our maker, is God, our father. Adoption means Jesus, our savior, is our brother. The purpose of adoption is to take us from slaves to sons. Now, some of you might be thinking, like, well, why didn't you say sons and daughters? Hold that thought. I'm going to come there in a minute. But first, I want you to notice one word that's critical. What does it say? So that we might what? We might what? We might earn? We might accomplish? We might merit? No, we might receive. We might receive. Adoption is something given to us. It's done to us. Adoption by its very nature is an act of undeserved kindness. It is not dependent upon the worth, the effort, the accomplishments of the person being adopted. Some of you here this morning, have become a father or mother by adoption. Some of you know some of those that, that have. Why? Because you had to? No. No one made you adopt. Here's the thing about adoption. You freely chose to set your love on another. And from that point, you have loved sacrificially, unconditionally, in the highs in the lows, when it felt good, and when it hurt, you were there because you chose to adopt. So it is with God. He freely chose to set his love on you, beloved. He was not coerced. He chose. It's not a duty for God to adopt his children. It is a sheer delight 
Remember the sermon from last week. The angels sang at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. In Christ, God is pleased with you. You're a joy to him. You're not a mild disappointment. You're not a nuisance. You're a joy. See, too often we define our salvation, we define our relationship with God in negative terms. I'm not guilty. I no longer face the just wrath of God. I don't have to feel shame. These are glorious and good, but they're incomplete. They're incomplete. Think about it this way. Imagine it's your senior year of high school. For some of you, that's looking back a couple years or a lot of years. For some of you, it's looking forward a few years. But just imagine it's your senior year of high school. You're excited you're about to graduate, but you have to pass one more final exam in math. And math has been a struggle all year long. So during the test, you cannot help but look at your friend's Work on the questions you don't know. You cheat. And you get caught. Now you're sitting in the principal's office. You know you're guilty. And you're afraid that you're not going to be able to graduate. The principal comes in and he says, listen. I know you're guilty. I know you cheated. But... I'm going to let you graduate anyway. You'd be thrilled, right? You'd be happy that you get to graduate. But here's the other thing. You'd also be very happy to never see that principal again. Why? Because that alone does nothing to warm, to reconcile the relationship. And too often, that's how we think our relationship with God. That he's the principal, we're the student. He's the boss, we're the employee. He's the judge, we're the defendant, the guilty one. And we think, well, God forgives us, but he wants to remain distant from us. He loves us just enough to kind of forgive us, but then there's not enough to actually make the relationship sweet. But that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of Christmas. That's not the message of Christianity. Christmas is more than God being our judge, sending his son so that we could be innocent. Christmas reminds us that in love, God sent his son into the world that he might adopt us and become our father. Right? To be made right with a judge is a great thing, but to be loved for and cared by a father is a greater thing. Or as another pastor says, justification clears us legally of guilt before the judge, but adoption includes us emotionally in the heart of the Father. Paul wants us to see in this passage not just what we are saved from, but who we are saved to. Paul wants us to see whose we are and who we are. That's why he says adoption as sons. Some of you might be thinking, why not sons and daughters? Here's the Bible again. 
sexist, exclusive, chauvinist pig Paul. Paul says adopted as sons not because he's being exclusive, but because he's being radically inclusive. As you read the Bible, you'll notice that being the firstborn son was a big deal, as it is in many cultures still today. The firstborn son is the one who inherits the best of the family possessions. The firstborn son has a special status in the family, access to the father, privileges that no other child in the family would have. So when Paul says adopted as sons, he's not being a chauvinist. He's being a counter-cultural revolutionary. He's raising men and women. Every ethnicity, every tribe, every skin color, men and women, age, doesn't matter. He's raising everyone to the highest honor, to the same access to and status before God. Just look back up at chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no second-class citizens in God's family. We all share the same access to and status before God. And remember what God the Father says to God the Son? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm what? Well pleased. He says the same thing to every one of his sons and daughters. This is my beloved Son. This is my precious daughter. In them, in him, in her, I am well pleased. Your status, your worth, your dignity is not tied to earthly accomplishments. It does not rest on your intellectual ability or your socioeconomic status. Your value is not tied to your popularity at school. It's not tied to your relationship status. It's not dependent on the clothes that you wear, the sports team that you make or fail to make, the degree that you get, the job that you have. The most important aspect of who you are is not defined by the sin you commit and is not diminished by sins committed against you. Our world and our hearts scream that performance, our performance earns love and acceptance. But Jesus says, no, belonging to me ensures your status, ensures your approval, It assures your acceptance. Kids, especially those in in middle school and high school, you you need to know that. The pressures of the world say, perform, 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 and then you'll be accepted. But if you don't perform, you're canceled. Christ says, no, come to me. You'll have all the approval, all the acceptance, all the love you could ever need or want. So for those of you trusting in Christ, rest assured of God's love for you. Your truest identity is secure. You have God's approval and his affection, and nothing will ever change that. God never neglects the ones he adopts. At just the right time, God sent his son. Why? To redeem us, to adopt us as sons. That those trusting in Christ might go from slaves, enslaved orphans, to adopted sons and daughters. Jesus gains our freedom and gathers us into his family. So when guilt, self-condemnation, self-righteousness and pride creep in, rest in the truth of your identity. 
of who you are in Christ. You've been redeemed by the Son, adopted by the Father. The story of Christmas is a story of God's unbroken love for his children. Think about this. If God is willing to send his Son to restore our relationship with him, we can rest assured that nothing will separate us from his love. Your status before God is not dependent upon your law-keeping. It rests on God's love-giving. That's what Christmas tells us. And so, church, counsel, disciple one another in these truths. Help each other as you carry unmet godly desires. Walk with each other suffering and sorrow through times of joy and celebration. As you call each other to repentance... Remind each other of your unshakable identity, immovable status before God, that he loves you and he likes you. And he freely chose to adopt you. This is your identity, beloved son, cherished daughter. But what are the benefits? What are the benefits of this new family and identity? What are the results of our adoption? We see one in verse 6, intimacy, and another one in verse 7, inheritance. The results of our adoption, intimacy. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So again, we saw in verse 4 that God sent his son into the world to make us children. Now in verse 6, God sends his spirits into our hearts to let us know that we really are his children. Jesus accomplishes our adoption and the spirit applies it. See, Jesus coming into the world gives us a new identity before God. The spirit coming into our hearts gives us deeper intimacy with God. You can think about it like this. Imagine a father walking down the, the road, walking down the sidewalk with his little child. Hand in hand they go. The the child knows he or she's holding the hand of his dad. He knows. She knows his dad loves. But suddenly the father scoops up his little son, scoops up his daughter, looks directly in the eye and says, I love you so much. Then he squeezes him. He squeezes her and he kisses on the top of the head and says, I just wanted you to know that. Sets the child back down and they keep on walking. What changed in that moment? Did the child become more of a child? No. The status did not change. What did change? The enjoyment of that status. The experience of the status. That's what changed. There was heartfelt intimacy and the warmth of a loving embrace. So it is with God sending his spirit into our hearts. This is not some abstract, warm and fuzzy feeling. This is not some mystical commotion inside of ourselves. That's not the feeling. It's communion with God. This is the spirit's job, to to show the eyes of our hearts Christ. And when we see Christ, we see the glory of God. And like the the rays radiating from the sun, it warms our soul. Because here's Christ. In Jesus, we see the one who is gentle and welcoming. Say, come to me, all who labor and are weary. In Jesus, we see the one who pursues the outcast, the vulnerable, touching the leper, loving the woman of the city, embracing everyone else 
rejects. In Jesus, we see one who rebukes those who abuse their power, the Pharisees, and the one who corrects false teaching, the Sadducees. In Jesus, we see one who cherishes friendship, weeps at death, and celebrates at weddings. In Jesus, we see one who loves his bride, the church, sacrificially and selflessly. In Jesus, we see God, and God is glorious and he's good. And the Spirit invites us and gives us intimacy in our relationship with God. It's what he does. Adoption brings intimacy with God. We can always go to him. He's never too busy to hear our prayers. He's never unconcerned about what's happening in your life. He sees, he hears, he knows, he listens. Intimacy, God's very own spirit inside of us. And notice what the text says. Notice the plurality of the language. Our hearts. And how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father. We're adopted into a family. We're not alone. We have the spirit inside of us and brothers and sisters around us. As I like to say often, when we call each other brother and sister, it's not just a convenient way to address someone's name who forgot. When you say that, you're, you're, you're speaking an eternal gospel reality that we have the same father. This is what happens. We're not alone. We're a big family. We're a messy family, yeah. But we're helping each other enjoy intimacy with God. And like coals on a fire, our intimacy with God is stoked and has the chance to remain warm when we're surrounded by others who love and pursue Jesus. That's why gathering with the church is so helpful and important. It's why community groups and disciple relationships, they stoke our intimacy with God as, as we help others also love Christ. Yes, sometimes our souls aren't warm. God does feel distant. In those moments, let me just encourage you to be honest with God. Let me encourage you not to seek a feeling, not to seek a change in circumstances. Notice this feeling of verse 6 is based on the objective accomplishments of verse 4 and 5. Look to Christ. That's where it comes from. By the Spirit, look to Christ. Ask God for Him. And remember, this side of heaven, the reality of our adoption will always be greater than our experience of it. So you can think about a, a young boy who puts on his dad's dress shirt or a little girl who puts on her mommy's dress. It fully covers him. It fully covers her. But it takes a lot of time for that little child to grow up and fit into it. So it is with our adoption. We're fully covered. We're fully loved. But it takes a lot of time for us to grow up into it and fully understand, to fit in it, as it were, to understand God's love. So don't be discouraged when, when you know the reality is here and your feelings down here. That's always going to be the case this side of heaven. Sanctification closes the gap. But one day, one day soon, we will fully experience the reality of what is already true. We will receive our full and final inheritance. That's what verse 7 teaches us. The other result of our adoption, inheritance. Look again at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. From slaves to sons. And not just any son, but the firstborn son. The firstborn son is the heir. He inherits everything that belongs to the father. Because of our adoption. Get this, this is amazing. Because of our adoption. 
everything that belongs to Jesus is ours. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, what, can you help me a little bit more, Joe, with that inheritance? What is it? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us we've inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every one of them. Every one. Every promise that God has given Christ is ours. We inherit. For all the promises are yes in Christ. It's true. We taste some of them now. The fullness and the final will come when we get to heaven. But more specifically, our inheritance begins with the great blessing of calling God Father. Ultimately, just like the priest in the Old Testament, their inheritance was not land. Go read it. Their inheritance was God. So it is with us. We have the inheritance, the blessing of calling God Father. But even more, Scripture tells us we will inherit the world. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. They shall inherit the earth. I take this to mean looking forward to a world restored back to the way it's supposed to be. The world spoken of in Revelation 21. A world with no tears, no pain, no death, no suffering. Heaven on earth. Emmanuel. God with us. Enjoying life for all is meant to be. So Christmas reminds us that Jesus came once and he's coming again. He will bestow on us boundless blessings, innumerable riches, the future of infinite bliss, all because God adopted us. He will arrive yet again in the fullness of time. But here's the problem. Our fullness of time doesn't always match God's, does it? Our hearts disciple us to think the fullness of time is now. And if we're honest, even now is sometimes a little too late. We don't want fullness. We want fast. Has anyone been bothered this Christmas season that your Amazon Prime two-day delivery has been delayed? How dare Jeff Bezos treat us with such disregard? Think about it. We can go online. We can find anything that we could ever need or want. Click a few buttons and it show up at our door in a few days. And we get upset when it takes 62 hours instead of 48. It's crazy when you think about it. But it's true. How about this one? Store checkout lines. With keen insight and careful calculation, you examine how fast the clerk is working. You check out how many goods and of what variety are in each cart. And you pick the line that is going to get you home 33 seconds faster. And as you beat those other silly people, you smile and you congratulate yourself. Those other fools. I won this race. But a desire fast 
isn't always tried as Amazon and deliveries and checkout lines, is it? Holiday season can be hard. Here you are yet another year. Instead of Christmas being happy, it hollows you out. You're troubled. You're sorrowful. You're reminded of your unmet godly desires. Feel sad and alone, tempted to despair. And you're asking, will, will God ever give me a spouse? Will God ever bring children? Will God ever save that family member or friend? Will God ever bring healing to my marriage? Will God ever bring healing to my cancer diagnosis or my other acute medical issue? Will God ever relieve the financial pressures that it seems like I face every day? Some of you kids might be thinking, will God ever bring me friends? Will my parents ever understand? Will God ever answer my questions about Jesus and the Bible? We daily deal with questions and unmet godly desires and temptation. And we can be tempted to think that God doesn't see, doesn't know, he doesn't care. But he does. His timetable is just different than ours. As one of my mentors used to tell me all the time, God is rarely early, but he's never late. See, we forget that Abraham waited 25 years for his promised son, because for us it's just a few flips in the Bible. We forget that Joseph waited a dozen years to be delivered out of prison, because it's just 13 chapters in our Bible. We forget that King David actually waited 15 years to become king between his anointing and actually becoming king. We forget that Anna in the New Testament prayed for 60 years. 60 years before her prayer was answered. We forget that Paul regularly pleaded with the Lord for an unmet godly desire, the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. And God never answered it this side of heaven. We forget that. We forget that one of the main calls of Scripture is to wait upon God as he brings about the fullness of time. Because as we've been saying all Advent, we're still in Advent mode. We're still waiting. We're not waiting for Christmas, but we are waiting for the consummation of all things. We are waiting for the fullness of our inheritance that Peter says is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This isn't a generic promise to to anybody. This is for God's blood-bought children, for those confessing and trusting in Christ. For you, beloved, one day soon, the fullness of that time will arrive. Heaven will come to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. And here's the thing. I don't know when that will be. And if somebody says they do, don't listen to them, because they don't know. We don't know. I don't know which answers God will provide before that day comes. I don't know what desires he might fulfill and what he might leave unfulfilled before you meet Jesus. I don't know. But I do know when that day comes, 
All wrong things will be made right. All dark things will be made light. All sad things will become untrue. And we will enjoy life that was always meant to be. See, because on that day, there's not only going to be the fullness of time, there will also be the fullness of joy. In Christ. We will inherit a world. All those trusting Christ will inherit the world. All the promises, free from sin, free from suffering, free from sorrow, only enjoy knowing God and his glorious creation with his people forever and ever and ever. So the fullness of time has come. So in one sense, Advent is over. God sent his son that we might become sons, that we might receive the gift of adoption and by the spirit cry, Abba, Father. We might rest in our new identity and experience profound intimacy with God and with each other. And yet, we're still in Advent mode. We're still waiting for the fullness of time when we'll receive our full inheritance. As we wait, as we sojourn together, beloved, remind each other the glorious reality of our adoption and what is just ahead. Christ has come. Christmas is here. Christ is coming again to bring heaven to earth. Friend, if you're not trusting in Christ, consider this message. Consider who Christ is and what it means to be adopted by him. Not by efforts, but by his grace in Christ. Let's pray.